I'm Stephen Lipson, and this is my 80s. Ography. Welcome! And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Grace. Hello. Uh, Grace being the middle name of my daughter. Not named after Grace Jones, great though she is. Uh, welcome to my 80s Ography. Uh, and that Ography bit was because... Stephen Lipson was the first interview I did for the My 80sography series. For some reason, I just thought of it as My 80s, so got him just to say that. My fault. <coughs> Pardon you, Grace. Uh, lots of fantastic stuff about Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is the focus of the first part of this interview. Really fascinating. There's a lot of other stuff, too, on Ringo, Rolling Stones, Trevor Horn, and so forth. Uh, so lots to enjoy, and um, I'll see you at the end. This is the start of the interview. So first of all, how you got into the business to begin with in the 70s? Uh, 70. What was the entry into the business? 64, 70. Uh, I started playing guitar at eight, played with people, ended up doing jingles. The guy who I was doing jingles with when I was 21, around then, I, I said to him something along the lines of, uh, I love playing on your jingles, but my guitar always sounds terrible. I wish I knew how to engineer. And he said, no, no, I didn't say how, I wish I could engineer. I wish I knew how to make it sound better. And he said, well, funny you should say that. I've just bought a building. And um, if you like, we can go 50-50 on a studio and I'll finance it and you build it and run it. And that's what happened. I didn't know what I was doing, but that's how I started. And what year was that? Uh, God, it must have been 74. Around then, 75. So what was the first year where you felt like you were really actually in the business, like working in the business? 75. That was 75, okay. <laughs> yeah, the studio opened and it was an immediate success. We did okay. really well. And I had a top 10 record in America, I think, in that first year, possibly.
1980. Okay, so then getting to the 80s, as you're approaching 1980, where were you at in your career? Probably nowhere, um, because due to a whole bunch of circumstances not worth discussing, I left that studio, and in order to finance my dreams of being a record producer, I became a freelance engineer, which was the sort of most hateful, I, I hated it. But, Why? but it's a very personal thing. But for me, engineering is, I, I find, a bit of a waste of time for me. I know it's a sort of hallowed thing, but it drives me mad. You know, it, it served me really well, but I find it frustrating because it's a job, but the, it's a weird job because the less you do, the better it is. I, I don't know. It's just a bit weird for me. I find it, in a way, it's kind of, because it's a job, people tend to do more than they need to do. That's what I'm saying. So when I started with Trevor, even though I was supposedly the engineer, really nobody engineered. It just sort of happened. I pressed the odd button, you know, push up a fader. It was all very lax and, and it worked well. And then I ended up, you know, getting a good assistant. And anyway, does that, does that answer your question? So yeah. I, was doing, I was doing freelance engineering work to earn a living to finance my dreams of being a record producer, which I was doing part-time there. We'll get a Trevor Horn later. So for, for in layman's terms, I always thought of it equating it to being like a cinematographer for a director in film. Is that you're as, handling the uh, technical aspects of recording music? Is that a fair analogy or is that completely missing the point? Wow. Uh, wait, wait, is that a good wow or a bad wow? Well, I, I don't know. It, it depends when you're talking about, because nowadays, m mind you, nowadays, I don't know what engineering is really. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, but if you're talking about then, when yes. there were tape machines and large consoles and big rooms, I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe you're right, but maybe the room that you record in is a cinematographer. I don't know. It's a funny analogy. Yeah. Because a cinematographer designs the look. Isn't that a cinematographer's main? Yes. An engineer wouldn't have the authority to design the sound. No, nah, not necessarily, but the room would. Yeah. No, I, w I would say an engineer's role is to uh, facilitate the recording of everything while keeping out the way. Okay. 1980. 1981. So anyway, start with 1980 and 81. So you worked with Lindisfarne quite a bit. Oh, yes, I did, didn't I? I sort of did two and a half albums with them. First time I worked with them, they were being produced, I think I'm right in saying by Hugh Murphy. I, I think. I might have that wrong. But at any rate, then we did a Ray Jackson album. I know that. And then they, for some bizarre reason, asked me to produce an album for them which I did, I think I did the whole thing at Chipping Norton, actually. Is it a natural progression at that stage to go from engineer to producer, or is it like a huge leap, a leap of faith? Well, here's a funny thing. The other day, I had a gap in um, this movie I'm doing. I had some time, and um, a friend of mine has copied a whole load of tapes for me. And I went through these tapes, and they were from when I was a teenager, onwards and it was fascinating because what i was listening to was me learning how to produce records 
just weird ideas I was trying out. So the reason I mention it is because no, it wasn't, it wasn't a funny leap. It was something I'd been doing on and off for ages. When I had this recording studio, it was called Regent's Park Recording Company. I made loads of records in downtime. Some artists I was producing there, but the band, this whatever, I call it a band. It was just three of us. We made loads of records, didn't release any. And then after that, I ended up working a lot at a studio called Producers Workshop in Fulham. And downtime, I'd be making records for people. Then I was a, a sort of house engineer in a studio in France. Downtime, I'd be making records. Same at Ridge Farm. That was another studio I used to help out in. And again, downtime, I'd be making records. And going through all these tapes, I heard all the stuff that I'd been doing over those years. So when Lindisfarne came along, it was just a name attached to what I'd been doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did it feel being producer for the first time? Was it daunting? Or because you prepared like most of your life to be a producer, was it now? Oh, I'd done stuff. I'd produced this group, Sniffing the Tears. I produced Jonah Louie. I produced stuff, you know, on and off. So I knew, mind you, it, it, funny enough, it wasn't until not long ago that uh, it dawned on me what the good side, of, not the good side, but what makes a good producer. I know it sounds like a funny thing to say, but anyway, so I was green, but I was just doing it because it's what I wanted to do and had been doing on it, you know, making records. I think the term producer might be a bit of an anomaly mm. at that point. Actually, that's true. I was making these records. I don't think I was much of a producer because I didn't have a handle on on the macro, you know, on the overview of what was going on. What would you say is the one characteristic that a producer needs to be successful more than any other? One characteristic, the ability to deliver what's required, I suppose. Okay. However, whatever it, whatever it takes. You know, there have been some records where... I've been more of a sort of social worker. Other records where I've played everything. Other records where I've just offered encouragement. You know, everything's it, just whatever it takes, really. So so which album were you most a social worker on? Oh, I couldn't tell you that. Oh. No, I'd never tell you that. What, what if I, I suggest an artist and you say yes or no? I won't answer the question, <laughs> really. <laughs> All right, okay. So around this time, I can't work out whether you actually worked on a Ringo Starr album or you almost did and you were just there on like a watching brief. The, oh. Uh, Stop and Smell the Roses. Uh, I, I was supposed to engineer it, ended up assisting, which was good news, all things considered. Funny yeah. enough, I, I did a Facebook thing about that at the weekend, I think. Yeah. Or the weekend before. I was supposed to be engineering it at Super Bear and at the last minute... I heard that they were bringing their own engineer. And I've got to say, I was kind of relieved because, you know, engineering for, for Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, when, when I wasn't really that into the idea of engineering in the first place, <laughs> didn't seem like a great idea. Paul was there at the time, was he? Because it was his song, wasn't it? One was. <laughs> I think one was. One was a cover and one was Ringo's. I think I'm right. It was like watching them work together. You... Amazing. It was the most amazing experience, actually. They were really good pals. I don't think Ringo was in a good place, funnily enough. I think he was he was drinking too much or taking drugs or whatever. It wasn't he wasn't in an ideal place, but he was delightful. And Paul, it was the first time I'd met Paul. 
and um, it was all a bit awe-inspiring, I must say. And and all the musicians they brought in, the scale of it was was different. I remember this is what I was write, wrote about the other day, being at the studio, and his guys came up before him, you know, three days before, to get the lay of the land, and just were critical about nothing just to wind me up and then the edwin shirley truck arrived you know this huge truck driving up the mountain with all this gear it was all and then peter henderson who was the he'd produced all those amazing super tramp albums so he showed the whole thing was extraordinary really they were very um warm and in, in, you know i didn't feel i couldn't talk to anyone i could talk to anyone it was good it was a good thing was eye contact allowed Sure. Yeah. I would talk to Paul and Linda Lodes. In fact, there was, um, again, this is what I wrote about. There was a thing at Ringo said to Paul, he goes, I want to use that microphone pointing to one. Of, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. One of those sure microphones that the crooners use there. Oh yes. They're, yeah. Yeah. They cradle them. Right. And yeah. they're absolutely terrible, but he wanted to sing in one. And Paul said, sure, sing in it. So sure enough, I set it up. And he sang in it. And while he was singing, I said to Paul, why on earth didn't we put a proper microphone up? And he said to me, um, he, look, he's comfortable. He wanted to sing to that. He'll be comfortable singing to that. And what the hell? You know, I just want to get the performance out of it. I don't really care how it sounds. And of course, that was a, one of those major moments when I realized that it's such an arbitrary thing. Mm. Sound. It's completely arbitrary. Everybody needs attention. Everybody wants to smile Everybody needs a mention Attention, attention for a while Come on baby, give it all you've got Get into the power of the past You know we'll only get it in Of course, that was very much the case with Trevor. You know, in some instances, we'd spend forever looking for a sound. But really, even though we were looking for sounds, I don't think it was the sounds we were looking for so much as the sound that inspired the performance more. No. Uh, you know, a great example of how sounds was um, slave to the rhythm. Getting, getting a drum sound took literally naught minutes. It took no time. You know, the, the kid in the studio, oh, kid, Bruce Lamkoff was my assistant at the power station. He set the mics up and I pushed the faders up. I happened to be in record be just because, because of habit. And um, that was the drum sound. I didn't do anything. It, it oh. sort of taught me a lesson, really. But you know when you've got it. I think that sound is such an arbitrary thing, isn't it? It's a bit confusing to know what makes a sound right, unless you have a very specific purpose for this sound. You know, I've watched, for example, I've watched Hans Zimmer spend hours tweaking a sound, but that's because he wants to get the right performance and he can't until he's tailored the sound to the idea in his head. You know, a guitar, plug a guitar and can you hear it? Yep, let's go. That's kind of, for example, with Jeff Beck, that's how it was. He didn't really care about the amp or the guitar. Just if he can hear it, he's up and running. That's surprising. 
Jeff Beck. He wasn't that bothered about the actual sound. The guitar made because he knew he could play it and it would sound good. Well, I've got to be honest, I don't think a guitar makes all that much difference. It's all in his hands. So, Paul, when you worked with him later at the end of the decade, did you remember you from the Ringo sessions? Yeah, he did. You made some kind of impression then. Whatever. uh, Maybe he didn't. He said he did. Maybe he didn't. 1982. So 1982, going into 83, did some sessions for the Rolling Stones for the Undercover album. Oh, yeah. How many of the tracks did you actually work on? Do you know? I mean, can you know? I worked on this one, that one, and this one. I know exactly how many. Either none or all. Because (laughs) (laughs) that sounds very vague, doesn't it? But what happened, I was there for maybe three months in Paris. And from what I could hear, we didn't actually achieve anything. It just all seemed ridiculous to me. I didn't hear a single track. But we recorded eight hours of music at night. And Chris Kimsey, the producer, spent ages going through everything. And he might well have dug up stuff and then they worked on it. So I don't really know. I bailed. Were you, you bailed, right? Were you basically just covering the basic tracks then as opposed to any overdubbing? Well, just, there weren't any tracks. It was just, just someone them. had a couple of chords and they played it for an hour. Very loose. Yeah. So I didn't re- I don't think I heard a song. I heard bits. <laughs> right. They might have become songs later. Yeah. So I don't really know. And is it true you asked Mick for a raise because it was costing you money to, to work? Yeah. And he said no, no. Actually, he didn't say no. He said we can get anyone for what we're paying you. Okay, that's worse than saying no then. So he said no and insulted you at the same time. Yeah, he said we can get anyone for what we're paying you. And and I, I said very politely, I said, well, unfortunately, you can't have me because I can't afford it anymore. And that was that. And, and at the Christmas break, I went home and then got called out to set up two or three days by Chris and got a reasonable amount of money. But there is a postscript to it, which is that when I was working with Trevor, we'd been working together for a while and um, Mick Jagger wanted Trevor to produce a solo album. And Trev came in and told me this and I told him the story of... of, (laughs) And so he didn't say anything. He just went for his meeting with Mick and he said, uh, he came back from the meeting and said, well, we're not we're not doing it i said oh wow what happened he said i told him i got an engineer he's very expensive he charges five <laughs> grand a day or some uh, something whatever it was even for the rolling stones karma will bite you on the ass yeah well i oh, that's, that's good it was just such a nice thing that he did that yeah and then life's too short to produce a mick jagger solo album isn't it let's face it well you know it's all these things are an experience 1983 uh, okay, so we're getting into 1983 now. This is where you met Trevor Horn. This is where, like, I guess your 80s really began and took off like a lot of people's 80s began uh, with Trevor Horn. Do you want to talk about how you met and your, your first experiences with him? I was working at this place, Producers Workshop, doing an album with this guy, the most amazing guy called Eddie Phillips, who used to be in a group called The Creation. And we were doing this concept album financed by the guy who owned the studio. I was loving every minute of it. And then a call came through. Would I do, would I engineer for Trevor Horn for two days? And um, there were, I had so many red flags because of that, which was extraordinary. For example, I didn't want to engineer. I was so fed up with engineering. That was the first thing. The second thing was I didn't want to engineer for him because I'd convinced myself 
I hated his records. But of course, I didn't hate his records. I loved his records, but I was seething with jealousy. I knew him because he was a session bass player, and I'd seen him at the studio I owned on several occasions. And so he was just this jobbing bass player with big glasses who suddenly was the, you know, the big time producer. Going into meeting him, what was what would you say was the record you loved most by him? I love them all, actually. I've got to be honest. I loved ABC. I loved Dollar. The Dollar singers were fantastic, weren't they? Oh, Hand I thought they were amazing. Yeah, they just, just sound so like a vibrant, perfect pop. Uh, Malcolm McLaren, I was bemused by, but it was obviously really good. I'm not sure the status of Art of Noise, because I, I say that because I remember editing. He asked me to edit Moments in Love, so I'm not sure. I think the first Art of Noise single came out in 84, I think that's close to the edit. Oh, okay. So I was already been working on that in 83. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, there you go. Okay, so uh, obviously you talk about 1983, uh, you talk about Relax, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which I had to think about this. I said there's three singles that as a, as a child had the biggest impact on me in the 80s. One is Vienna Ultravox, the other one is Shout, Tears of Fears, and the third one is Relax. Kind of as an 11 year old, just completely blew my mind. So what was your first time, because as far as I understand it, there's the first, the first version you worked on was the third version. It was the first version they tried with the band, the second version with the Blockheads. Yeah, then we were doing the third version. That was, I started at the beginning of this third version. Right. And what, what form was the song at that stage? It was whatever we wanted it or he wanted it to be. So I can't remember what he played us. I don't think he played us the Blockheads version at all. Did it have that pulsing rhythm? That no, no, not at all. No, it was a different bass line, if I remember rightly. I think it might have been the Blockheads bass line all the way through. It was a bit, it was a bit sort of groovy. It wasn't very, um, it was me, Andy Richards, JJ and him. I think that was it. But Andy was new as well. Andy and I arrived at the same time. So we got, and still are, we became very good close friends. He, he was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, as was JJ. So it was really the four of us in the room, and I was supposed to be the engineer, but he, I think he went out for dinner, and we were doing Ferry Across the Mersey, and it didn't have any guitar on it, and he came back from dinner, I was playing guitar on it, and he walked in, look, he looked like a madman. He said, who's, who's playing the guitar? And I said, well, that's me. And he goes, well, that's the guitar part. I didn't know you could play guitar. And I said to him, but I, actually, I told you I could play guitar. Anyway, so that got his head going. So I'll continue to say, where I always 
the place I love, and here I'll stay. And consequently, he came in, I don't know which day, it might have been the next day, and said, all right, we're scrapping what we're doing, and we're going to start again. You play guitar, you know, Andy, keyboards, JJ, get, get a sequence going in the Fairlight, and I've got this rhythm in my Lin, it was a Lin 2, and that's what happened. See, from that point on, engineering just sort of, I don't know, it didn't really happen. It kind of happened. It was yeah. more, can you hear yourself? Yeah, okay, let's go. It was that. As long as everyone could hear themselves, that was the engineering done. And I spent from then on kind of engineering, but basically playing on everything. And if you're playing, if you're engineering, and then you start playing guitar, does that double your fee, basically? Or was it all part of the same thing? Oh, do you know what? I didn't think about that. They probably paid me for playing. Right. It didn't double my fee. You know, it was a whatever. Oh, we'll pay you a couple hundred quid a day for playing. You know, some, it wasn't really about that. Uh, was Holly brought in to sing once the track was completed or was it a work in progress when he did his vocal? Uh, I think we would have worked on it afterwards, but it was pretty good. It was fully structured and had uh, all the interesting points. And do you remember the first time you listened to the completed version when it was, was finished? No, I don't, because at that point, Trevor wasn't comfortable with the idea of me mixing. So I think he got Julian Mendelssohn to mix it. And right by then, I think we'd moved on to the album or whatever we were doing. We were just working away. I don't really remember hearing it. And then the single started happening and we had to move on to another single so the whole what what would you call it the whole sort of build up the crescendo of relax went completely over my head i knew it was happening but we were busy making two tribes while it was going on when it was banned by radio one by mike green were you aware of that was it like yes we're really gonna have a massive hit here this is really gonna take off yeah i was kind of aware And in at number 35, but you can guess the next one, it's Frankie Goes to Hollywood with Relax. Hey, I've just taken a look at this cover. I've just looked at the cover. I think it's obscene. This record is absolutely obscene. I'm not going to play this, you know. No, I'm sure I'm not going to play this. Thank you and goodbye. And actually, I, I don't know what my reaction was. Probably because I didn't mix it, so I probably had the hump with Julian and Trevor about it. You know, just childish behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not seriously, but I don't think I really engaged in the in the song. Whereas Two Tribes, even though the single was mixed by Julian, every other version I think I did. So from that point on, I ended up mixing everything. All right, we'll get to the mixes of Two Tribes in 1984. Um, 83, so back to relax. Um, so when the band heard it, was there any resentment that they weren't on it or were they accepting of that at that stage? Oh, I think they were completely accepting. Was that a kind of deal they signed up for and they signed? No, but they knew it was a good version. I'm sure they figured they'd be playing on their record. But having said that, Nasher, he just joined the band. He, he, he could hardly, he wasn't really good at the time. I mean, he got loads better, but I think when he joined, he wasn't that great. So, uh, no, I don't think they were bothered. They wanted a hit. They got a hit. It was yeah. good. And how? Okay, we'll get to the album in 84 again. I mean, 
The song still sounds amazing 35 plus years later, like nearly 40 years later. It does sound like fun, doesn't it? It's just got such an energy to it. I mean, I hear the song now, and I, I, I'm 11 again. And I look at the cover, and that must have really confused me as an 11-year-old. It's like, why is this man in leather pants giving this woman a backless piggyback? Yeah, that must have like, really kind of played my mind. And also, I always thought the line was, um, when you want to suck a chew it. You know the chew it sweets? Yeah. I used to always think that was the line, and obviously it wasn't. But not one of these buildings could match the delicious, chewy flavors of Chewits. Mm. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Chewits are even chewier than Barrow in Furness Plus Depot. I've no idea what that, never, never knew what he was saying, actually. Well, that's the good thing of being 11 years old. You don't get it, do you? Just say, oh, you want to have a sweet. That's fair enough. Yeah. Well, he's giving this woman a backwards piggyback. It's going to be quite tiring. You're going to get a bit of energy, aren't you? Yeah, true. 1984. And then the album comes out. I mean, two tracks. I mean, anyone who wasn't around, the summer of 84 was such an exciting time as a kid. It seemed like every week there was a different mix of two tribes coming out. You know, the Frankie Says t-shirts and everything. And it was just very exciting. How clear is that time to you? You said you mixed most of the two tribes. So all those mixes that were done for that single. Uh, uh, I don't know how many were done. I, I certainly know that the album version was my mix, and I know that there was there was a version of uh, a twelve inch I remember doing clearly, and I did, I must have done more than one because they were just pouring out the building, yeah. weren't they? And it, yeah, it was relentless, but in a great way. It was just like it was just like the summer that never ended. It, just, it was good fun. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I equated to how, how punk must have felt like in 76, 77. It kind of lasted the same amount of time as well. It started in one year and went into the next. Yeah. The actual album itself, what percentage of the album were the band playing on? What percentage was it you I got? think they played on everything apart from four songs, but you know what? I'd, ne I'd need to look at it to know what... Would those four songs be the singles then, basically? The Power of Love they wouldn't have played on. Oh, um, they did. Maybe it's just three. Hang on, let me have a look. Uh, welcome... To the pleasure dome. Okay, track listing. Well, uh, the opening was nothing. Then, welcome to the pleasure dome. No, relax. They didn't play on war. They didn't play on two tribes. They didn't play on ferry across the Mersey. They didn't play on born to run. They played. Now, that was the first time I heard that song as a kid. Was was the Frankie versus that? Always, oh, okay. Born to run was a Frankie song to me that Bruce covered. Do you know the way to San Jose? I think that was all Louis Jardim, actually. So they didn't play that. Wish the lads were here. Don't even know what it is. So they must have played it. Band of 32. They played that. I think, and they played all the rest. You said they played on Power of Love. Yeah. There is like a band recording that's then got an orchestra overdubbed on top of it. Yeah, and a keyboard. Yeah. But in terms of the guitars, then, how, how much was you and how much you said that... that um, Nasha wasn't really very good on the guitar at this stage. So what percentage of the guitar was you and what percentage of the guitar was him? They were all me on the songs that they didn't play on. I mm -hmm. think that's right. I didn't play on... Mind you, I think Nasha played on... Uh, he did one thing on Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, thinking about it. You know, it wasn't a competition. It was just who was there and who could do it. And that, that applied to the next album as well. They weren't precious. So Steve Howe of Yes played an acoustic 
solo on. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a um, 14 minute track. When was it decided? Well, before that, when was it decided to be a double album? And then once you decided that one, is it decided to stretch that track out to one side? Uh, no, the, it, that wasn't the uh, sequence of events. I think it became a double album. You know what? I'm very vague on this, but I think Paul Morley would have thought it was a bit of a gag. That was kind of how, how a lot of things happened. He would have some ins inspired idea from a sort of publicity point of view, and off we'd go. Like the 12 inches, he'd have ideas, and we'd just run. I say we, it was Trevor who ran with them. So. Uh, but Welcome to the Pleasure Dome was probably, hang on, it's 1340. So I think it's, it was just over three minutes, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And um, we had two tape machines. So, you know, we had one tape machine and I suggested we get a second tape machine. They were digital. And I got the maintenance department to build me a couple of cables so I could go from one to the other. And I figured out, I, I wrote this software, this is really weird, that could figure out offsets according to the tempo of the track. So I had this idea, Trevor knew nothing about this. I copied Welcome to the Pleasure Dome from one machine to another. So I had two versions of it. I offset one version so that at a very specific point, started again so wherever it got to the end of the last chorus how would it have done, how would i have done it in welcome to the pleasure dome edit back to the beginning of the intro of the whole song right and i copied that back onto the machine that the original song was on so now it's double the length and then i did it again so it was four times but each part had to mirror the same chord sequence yeah, it's all the same, and then we just erased stuff and had these huge holes, and we didn't know what to do in the holes, and so what random stuff happened, really random, like Steve Howe was random. I did a guitar solo; it was random. Uh, is that the one at ten twenty-five? That kind of Steely Dan-esque kind of. Oh yeah, that 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 was that was so weird. I was um, on the other side of the desk. I remember my head between the speakers and I picked up my guitar and I said to the assistant, just play this bit of the track. And unbeknown to me, went into recording. It was really quiet. I could hardly hear it. And I was saying to Trevor, this bit here could have some kind of jazz solo over it, you know. And I was talking to him, saying, explaining what I thought it could be while I was playing. It finished. And he said to the assistant, play that back. And that was what I played while I was talking to him. And that was the solo. It was really odd and it amazing. The first take. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even a take. It was a sort of explanation of what it could be. So that was that. Then there was another bit where uh, we hung microphones out the window when they were cleaning up after the carnival. There were all these bits and we just filled them in, you know, like a like painting by numbers, except we didn't know what the numbers were. It just works brilliant at the end. Yeah, it goes out of time at the end. At what point? Uh, Go on, ruin the song for me. Go on, tell me where it goes out of time so I'll never not hear it that way again. 
Well, I'll tell you where you hear where I hear it. The whole thing drifts, and it drifts because I got one thing wrong on that first the first time I did it. The, the, this multi-track copying. It is towards the end of the last chorus. We're a long way from home. Around then, the percussion just gets a bit loose. It's not very out of time. It's a matter of milliseconds. But I remember hearing it, and I couldn't understand why this had happened. And then I got to the bottom of it. I figured what had gone wrong, and it never happened again. Who did the female vocals on that part? I'm not sure it's, it's credited or not. Uh, it's probably Tessa Niles. She was doing everything in the 80s, wasn't she? Yeah, I would imagine it was Tessa. Yeah. And the power of love. Do you remember the first time you heard that? And what form you heard it? Was it as a demo? Was it a band demo? Yeah, it never really changed much. And they, the band themselves wrote that because it's so untypical of anything else they wrote. It's just, yeah, it is, isn't it? You know exactly who wrote it. The um, creator, I mean, obviously, Holly, I assume Holly wrote the lyrics. You know who wrote the tune? Oh, Holly would have written the tune. Right, so he wrote it all. No, he wouldn't have written the chords. Someone else would have written the chords, music. With melody and lyric. Yeah. That's a beautiful song. Yeah, it's sweet. I'll protect you from the hooded claw. Keep the vampires from your door. Feels like fire. I'm so in love with you Dreams are like angels They keep bad at bay, bad at bay Love is the light Scaring darkness away yeah. I'm so in love with you Purge the soul Make love your goal The power of love A force from above Cleaning my soul Flame on burn desire Love with tongues of fire I, I must say, I was so sort of enamoured with Two Tribes by that time that everything else just, I think, to an extent, Trevor felt the same. Everything else was was sort of torment, really, because we'd spent months on Two Tribes and it was, a, it was like a pinnacle for us. It, we'd put everything into it. So everything that came after it was a little bit, oh, God, you know, we've got to do that. <laughs> A little bit. Are we 
Because you have love, oh God. <laughs> well, it, 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 I, I'm exaggerating to make the point. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess Two Tribes had to succeed because it's probably one of the best-selling singles of all time. It had what, to, Two it Tribes is? Yeah, it couldn't just be a good song. It had to be great. It had to be... Because I remember when it came out how exciting it was. Just just the energy of the song. Like I, I said, remember I, when I, I first heard the demo, he put, we were at... He said, uh, uh, funny enough, at Producers Workshop, he said, we're, we're, we'll get the band down to play the next single. And he kept it quiet because he couldn't figure what the next single was. <laughs> and he played it to us. And I remember Andy and I were looking at him going, well, what the hell? This is terrible. And he <laughs> said, no, we'll, we'll figure it. We'll figure it. We'll get the bass line good. You know, he was going, we'll get the bass line good. It'll be great. And uh, the band came in and played it. And um, uh, it didn't, it wasn't good. So we got some kind of rhythm on the Fairlight. And uh, there, there was a key moment when, I don't know who, it must have been Andy, where he dropped the bass down an octave for one note. Are you aware it does that? Yeah, that note. So what was it before then? And so he went and as soon as that one note made the difference. That one note. And then because he did that, I got a guitar idea which is to play a harmony on it. And that was it. We knew we had something worth working on. Having said that, I still couldn't get my head around the song until, for me, I, I can't speak for Trevor, but for me, when Paul Morley came up with all the imagery, then suddenly it, it, it just clicked into place. You know, that Reagan... Yeah, the video. Off, whatever. The whole thing just suddenly made so much sense to me. Just think of it. War breaks out and nobody turns up. That's the, that's the thing about Relax and Two Tribes. I mean, The Power of Love is such a beautiful song. You can play it on an acoustic guitar and it's just as beautiful. Whereas Two Tribes Relax aren't necessarily great songs, but they're brilliant records. Yeah. It needed to be produced and, and made to, to, to be great. And that's, that's kind of what you and Trevor added to it. Did you feel that closer attachment to those two records for that reason? Because you added so much. Uh, two Tribes mainly. Yeah. I, I I always think it would be such a great thing to have played at my funeral, you know, the instrumental version <laughs> of the tribes. That with a bang, yeah? That that was good fun. It I think was, relax would be better for you, actually. Relax. And you want to second chew it, yeah? The, the thing about relax, even though it was their sort of shining moment, it was two tribes that felt more satisfactory to me. Relax, I don't know. Of course it was great and such an honor and all those things to work on it. But it didn't satisfy me in the same way. I, you know what, it might be for a really stupid reason, which is that I love my guitar part in Two Tribes, which is a really pathetic thing to say. It just felt like I've really hit on a good moment. So is it hard to separate the process from the end result then? Because if you've had a terrible experience making a record, it turns out brilliant. All you can think about is a terrible experience. If you've had a great experience, you feel like you've really contributed, like the guitar part in Two Tribes. Even if someone else might think Relax is a better record, you think, well, Two Tribes is the one because of the experience I had making it as well as the end result. Maybe. You, that might be true. It, yeah. it, it's hard to say because whenever 
I can only speak for me, but whenever I finish a record, I really don't want to hear it again. You know, it, I never think they're very good. I compare them to other people's records and they always sound so dismal. But funny enough, Two Tribes always sounded good. But we yeah. did spend a long time on it, you know. I know for a fact we were working on the bass and Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley were in the other, another studio at Psalm mixing an album. They went away came back to mix another album and we were still working on the bass. <laughs> now, does that mean they work really fast or you work really slow or both? Or both. But I don't know. We were, it wasn't so much that we were slow. It was that we, we were, I don't know. We were just looking for something. It was all to do with the um, enunciation of it, the way it spoke. We knew it was kind of obvious. It was all about the bass, this mm. record. Oh, the other thing that happened was Andy Richards came up with these great chords. Those chords were never there. And when he played the chords course, that opened it right up. It made it into a piece of music. You mean the chords for the basic part of the song, the main part? Yeah, and the verse, the verse chords. Yeah, brilliant. He, he was, when he was hot, he was the best. He was amazing, Andy. So when does an arrangement become... A songwriting credit because if you've actually changed the chords of a song oh not- we've talked about this loads it, you know it's a funny one if you're producing a record and you make all these changes i i don't know about now but then it wouldn't be right to say and and i want some of the publishing because I, it just wouldn't have been right didn't feel right felt greedy now i don't know it might be different now now you don't make any rec- any money from records so so maybe publishing should be split if if someone's putting a lot of work in uh nowadays people get credit for writing credit for creating the beat when was the last time you heard welcome to the pleasure Dome? oh i haven't heard it for years actually good um, album you should try it it's pretty good you know what uh, i don't often listen to old stuff i've done i have started listening to a few things because of these i do this ridiculous thing every sunday i do a facebook post it started as something else and has morphed into me rabbiting on about some record or experience i've had and um on some occasions i've posted a link to the record and just out of curiosity have listened to that record and sometimes pleasantly surprised, sometimes a bit bemused. That when, when was the last time you listened to the 14-minute version of Welcome to the Pleasure Dome? Uh, probably just after we made it. It's just one of those songs you can just get lost in. You put your headphones on just to lose yourself. No, I haven't heard that for ages. You should, you should check it out. It's really good, Stephen. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, just check it out. This is one of my recommendations for you, okay? <laughs> okay. Nipson's List. Um, this was going to be something called Liston's List where you list your favourites of the 80s. But as you said in the email, you didn't have any time for that kind of stuff in the 80s because you're too busy working. Was that true? Yeah, it's true. I have no idea what came out in the 80s. So you wouldn't, in terms of, like, for work purposes, check out the competition to see what was relevant and hot at the time? You wouldn't like, watch Top of the Pops on a Thursday to see, okay, what is... We always watch Top of the Pops, but generally speaking, I know this sounds really weird, everyone gathered around the TV in the basement at Basing Street... And most of the records emanated from there. You Not know, most, but a lot, an awful lot did. And we just, I don't know. I wasn't really aware of what was happening. If you could have produced any album or song in the 80s, which one would you choose? Oh, you see, now you've lost me. 
uh, I loved, I'll tell you what I loved. I wouldn't have liked to have produced it, but um, some of Stock Aitken and Waterman's records I thought were amazing. Absolutely amazing. we got here whitney houston eric bm rocky you, you did produce whitney houston later on yeah you? i did yeah. hang on marvin gay madonna uh forgot see whatever that is sonic what is this list i've got the smiths the smiths are funny the cure prince prince was the 80s was he yeah oh, absolutely yes i'm not sure that i can answer who i'd like to um what record i'd like i'd like to have made because it's a really funny one I'm sort of writing something about that at the moment. Why do I want to work with someone? Is it because I like what they've done? Is it because I don't like what they've done? Maybe, <laughs> you know, and think I can. So that's help. a challenge, right? If you can actually produce the one yeah. good record by them. Is it because I think I can contribute a lot? But then that's weird because it's not really about me. It's about them. Is it because I like them as a person? Is it because... It's convenient because of where they live. You know, is it because I like their music, their musicality, maybe? I don't know. I think it's a weird one. I think, you know, the people I like to produce are surprises, really. I, I, I don't know. It's a really hard one. Mind you, Jill, Trevor's wife, who managed me for a while, said to me um, once, one day, she said, OK, who do you want to work with? And, and I, I probably gave the same answer. She said, you've got to tell me someone. And I said, okay, I'll tell you who I'd like to work with. The singer in Eurythmics, which is kind what, of... What year was this have been? What year was this have been? Uh, before Diva. Oh, yeah, long before Diva. I wasn't yeah, managed I... by her when that came up. That was a bolt out of the blue for me. End of part one of the interview. So as a massive fan of the first FGTH album and those singles, I was absolutely fascinated uh, a chat with Stephen. I could have talked to him for hours about them. Yes, definitely listen. If you've not heard the Frankie album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, please listen to it. But be careful we listen. I've, I've checked the fruity streaming service, and for some reason it has the single version of the title track, not the 14-minute version. And it seems to be a trend that's happening quite a lot. I remember listening to Human's Lib by Howard Jones. And for some reason they got the 12-inch mix of What is Love and not the normal album single version on every version that I could find. Same with Madonna's first album. It seems to have different versions than the actual original LP. So make sure when you listen to an album you're listening to the right version because they're designed a certain way to be listened to a certain way. Treat these 80s albums with the respect they deserve. Uh, I see reference to yours on Facebook, so check him out there. In the second part, we've got more on Frankie, but loads more on Pet Shop Boys, Paul McCartney, Grace Jones, etc. Uh, interview ended with him talking about Annie Lennox, so we will end with an Annie song. It's a shame that Diva wasn't quite in the 80s, it was released early 90s, the first solo album that he produced. It's a fantastic album. Uh, this song was a B side to a Diva single, produced by Stephen, as was the later version by Whitney Houston. Uh, but I prefer this version. So let Annie sing us out 
and I'll see you soon for part two. Love and peace.
Pinky say no more. My name's Art. My name's Pete. My name is Freya. It's actually Freya. Mine is the last voice you will hear. Apart from me. <laughs>